Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hello, everyone. My name is Peter Pascucci, and we are back this week. I'm joined again by Oren Sofer, and we have the honor of welcoming acclaimed commercial director Marisha Makowska to the show. Marisha is a Polish-born, Brooklyn-based director with an impressive background in commercial art direction and industrial design. We cover some really interesting topics today, like how trends affect cinematography, selecting the right cinematographer, and some differences between commercial work in the States versus abroad. So welcome, Marisha. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We are honored to have you and very excited to talk. So we like to just kind of dive in, and you're someone who I think has had tons of experience in the commercial world, both here and abroad, and... I love your work so much. I have since before we worked together and and still do. And I, yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on changes in the commercial industry. I mean, we've talked about this a bit on the show, but from your perspective, I'd love to just hear any thoughts you have and changes you've seen over the years working in this field. Yeah, definitely. I feel like my career is revolving around commercials, but I wasn't always a director. Actually, directing is a fairly new thing for me because I did. I switched over to directing only probably five years ago. And before that, I did a lifetime in advertising. So as an art director and then later as a creative director. So I've seen it all, I think, in the last, at least in the last 18 years. You know, when I was starting as a junior art director, we were still shooting in film. That was back in 2005, a long time ago. I remember actually going to Cape Town, South Africa, and shooting a lot of commercials on film. And so it would stopped at some point, and that was around the financial crash. And then since then, I was really conscious about observing the, our industry, of course, from advertising standpoint, but I did see those spikes in creativity. And I was working you know, in Poland, Warsaw, obviously this is where I'm from. I also did work in South Africa, and then I moved to New York, and this is where I spent most of my conscious career in. You know, it's very funny because when I look for references for my treatments, I look at, at a lot of work that is not only from like last two years, but also I try to look at other commercials from maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. And when I look at all this like breadth of work that was created in the last, well, let's say, 12 years, I see different trends and I see like uh, fashions that mostly touch on editing te technique, color and our approach to authenticity. And I think that in editing, there was such a big spike in creativity since TikTok. People really edit in a different way, even film. But of course, commercials are drawing so much uh, inspiration from social media, especially from TikTok. So this is actually great to see. Everything is allowed. I love it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Does that affect you as a director at all? Do you find that you bump up against trends or is that something that over the years as you've transitioned from creative directing into directing proper on commercials is that something you have to duck and weave past or is it something you lean into and are interested in exploring like ooh, what can we do with this trend what can we do with that trend or are you the kind of person who's like i don't want to deal with trends i want to do my own thing like i, I forget authority 
and all the pressure that there is to conform to stuff. Like, I'm just going to do my own stuff. That's my dream to do my own stuff, of course, <laughs> and to really say the next interesting thing. I would love to say the next interesting thing. Then I'll be like super famous. But of <laughs> course, we always have to borrow from the trend or at least uh, way beyond serve the trend. I think as a director, you're in a very difficult position because when the creative agency comes to you, they are looking for specific style that they've seen somewhere else, or maybe they've seen it in your work. But everything because of that becomes very referential. Of course, you also, how you write treatments, how I write my treatments. I put a lot of references in my treatments. And the danger of this referential approach or referential character is that at some point, we start repeating other people or ourselves. So, of course, I would love to come up with the next interesting thing and show it to people and they would buy it without me showing references, but that's not possible. Yeah. Were there any trends over that period of time that you were like, oh, I can't wait for us to get past this one. Like, I'm ready for the next thing that this is annoying me. Like for me, it was, um, this still pops up occasionally, but for a long while, it was very trendy to do mixed media and people were like, let's get a, let's get a, uh, a handy cam. Let's get a camcorder. Let's get a mini DV in there. Da, da, da. And for me as a DP, that kind of stuff, especially on like short schedule commercials can be very like, oh, now we have all these other cameras we need to babysit and we need to make sure that we can get all the footage and get the workflow. Like it adds all this extra layer of stuff where you're like, can I just shoot on an Alexa and just get this spot in the can and let's move on? We could apply that look later, but the mixed media thing, I understand the allure of it, but it, it's, it could be a little annoying for a while. Oh my God, yes, of course, so many trends and I've committed all of them, I think. It's not always work that I show on my Vimeo page, but yes, for example, oh my God, mixed media, definitely. Another <laughs> trend, of course, transitions are still alive and I was very scared of transitions and agencies started requesting transitions, but I felt I could never like really find my transition because they are so repetitive and whip pants are never enough. You have to do like special camera movement, barrel roll, frontal, back. So I'm not a big fan of this trend because I feel like you never know. It doesn't really serve narration. It serves tricks and kind of camera showing of the camera possibilities. There are so many other trends like wall of TV sets behind the main character. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that one's very prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wall it was like two sets. years ago. Everybody yep. did a wall of TV sets. I think now there is a subtle trend of shooting everything back on film, which is, I actually like this trend. And this year, I think I only shot three projects on Alexa, probably one on Sony Venice, and then the rest was Super 16 or 35. I, I feel like you talking about this though does make me think about the fact that the commercial world is the forefront of like film technique in many ways because we have the resources and we have the, the budget and stuff to like play with these things. And yeah, it's just interesting to think that like maybe for a while commercials were setting trends and now like you're saying it's moving into like social media setting trends and then commercial world kind of reflecting that and yeah it's just interesting how things shift over time yeah like one one major thing that i always see in your work is what you mentioned is your references like you are a well of amazing references and it's so helpful as a dp to work with someone who's so precise about what they're looking for and is able to dig and find all those like examples of very specific lighting setups or very specific production design sets and things like that 
And I think, yeah, it can be challenging at times when you're being asked to do something but not provided with some sort of direction visually. And I always appreciated that. And on one job that we did together, it was really interesting that I started to see like beyond just these like amazing documents full of references, there started to become like generated images, AI images and things like that. And it's funny too, because like over the course of even just this show, like from when we started till now, like some of our earlier episodes when AI was really coming on strong, like I remember like gripping my desk and being like, we're fucked. And I don't know, it just ebbs and flows and stuff. And so even talking about it now, you know, I'm not as anxious about it in this moment, but who knows what's going on out there. But yeah, I'd like to hear just what your thoughts are on AI and, and whether it's worked into some of your more recent projects and, and how you like to use it as a tool to either guide cinematographers or production designers or, you know, sell an idea to a client. Yeah, I know that many people are definitely wondering about AI replacing humans. I personally cannot see this happen because you still need the human element to write the prompts and to control AI and uh, to come up with the idea and emotion. AI is great as a partner in bouncing the, the ball, but it's, I don't think it can, as of today, really generate images or ideas that move us emotionally. And that's all about, even commercials are about emotions. So I really don't worry about it. It's a great tool, I think. I use it in my work. Uh, I don't use it a lot because I notice that there is certain AI look that I cannot shake off. And this look, you look at the image and you know that it's AI generated, especially when it comes to featuring human faces. So I, I actually, like in my treatments, I like to mix images, references from film and if I need any specific scene, then I use mid-journey to create that. But of course, if you have a very specific thing in your head and you don't want to be referential, you don't want to repeat some other artist or some other director or yourself, then AI is great because I think it actually can stop us. I think AI can stop us from being so referential in the future. I think it will bring us this freedom to show what's in our head to the people, to the client, to the agency, to, to the DP in a way that we see it. So before AI was popular, which is like just recently, <laughs> I tried to draw my treatments and I did this one experiment on a music video job. I decided that I'm not going to use any references because then the client wants that exact thing. And I say, well, we can't do it because it's from another director, but they <laughs> really want it. And so I, I had this idea and I drew everything, hand drawn it and presented it in my treatment in a nice way. But it was all drawings and the label just didn't understand it. They, the producer called me and asked me for some image references. Yeah. <laughs> and I really thought it was explained very well. But yeah, it's I think that's another problem with storyboards which are a great tool but you can't sell emotion with storyboards totally it's just a helpful reference for a technical crew or specifically the cinematographer as a guideline for framing and stuff like that but i find storyboards helpful only for that but really like on set you just have to end up re imagining them anyway. It's just a little reference of like, oh, okay, we need a medium shot. We need a close up. We need this, but it, it's not any more specific than that. But yeah, I think the way you use AI and what you've described is using it as, I've always called it like a little grab bag. It's like a grab bag that you can reach into and generate some image that you can shape and guide into something that's in your head as a reference tool for a treatment or concept art or anything like that, that just helps to start get visual ideas going and just get something out of out of one's head into sort of physical manifestation. My fear with the commercial world specifically is that these companies will look at this and start seeing these images and are already seeing these images and scarier seeing the, um, the video 
AI that like the motion versions of, of Midjourney, uh, Runway and, and all these other applications. And we'll start to say, wait a second, there, you just made the spot. Like you just generated it already. Like, why do we now need to go film it? And I completely I agree with you that there needs to be a human touch in order to imbue something with emotion. And at the end of the day, commercials are also about capturing emotion and creating a feeling that ties somebody, you know, an audience member, a potential customer to a product or an experience or whatever. And without that, you would lose something in the effectiveness of the commercial as a selling point and as an art form. But like, I'm, I don't trust companies to see that. Like I, they, people that are only thinking about the bottom line could be very tempted by the idea of why do we even need we don't need the human touch. Like we can just generate this and nobody's going to know the difference. So I don't know if, what, what are your thoughts on that? And is that something that worries you? And do you think there's a solution? Like how can we sort of get people to see what we see that there's this sort of blankness to it? There's a lack of emotion to it that would take something away from the effectiveness of this as a advertising medium and as a, as an art form. I think that people have a very good radar for authenticity and I don't think you can really do a commercial that is emotion-driven equity spot manifesto spot that will be created by AI I just don't believe in that maybe you're gonna surprise me next year but or some generative AI tool maybe this will be the reality that some advertising that sells the product, right? Because you have the manifesto advertising that sells the brand awareness. And then you have advertising that pushes the product, like like uh, product spots, 15 seconds product commercials. Maybe this kind, the product, the, the selling commercials will be created by AI and that's fine. And maybe there is another way, another genre of commercials will emerge that is absolutely visually stunning, still created by humans. Therefore, it's much more expensive and it will be paramount of filmmaking. Uh, so maybe it's, there is an opportunity if the lowly kind of commercials becomes AI generated. Yeah, I love what you're saying about like emotion and how that is so inherently tied to any sort of film project, whether it's a commercial or a music video or a narrative. And like in past conversations, we talked to people about storyboarding and how it can be a crutch sometimes. And I think I've felt that recently on certain shoots where it's like people are treating the boards like it's the Bible or something. And they will do that before they even like walk into a space and be like, okay, here are our characters. Here are the people that we're working with. Here's the place. Here's our lighting. It almost is like people run to the boards and are like, this is what we need. And it becomes so prescriptive and puts you in such a box that it's hard to like convey any emotion after that point. And, you know, in a past conversation, we were talking to someone who like was describing working with a certain director who had him shoot hundreds of cans of film. And then Oren brought up this point of like sifting for gold, like this idea of like sifting for gold when you're when you're shooting something, trying to find those real moments of truth. And I don't know, you're someone who's always struck me as someone who approaches any given project with like a very human touch and really cares about what's being conveyed. And I'd love to, for you to just elaborate a little bit on, like, on how you arrived at that technique as a director and why you think it's so important, I guess. This is an interesting question. You know, sometimes there are moments, moments when I would love to be a fly on the wall and see other directors work. I sincerely have no comparison to how other people work. And I would love to shadow a director, but really shadow them and see how they interact with people on set and how they prep for work. Because what I do, this is very instinctual thing. I never learned directing in school. I never went to film school. I actually studied something completely different. 
I studied industrial design, you know, and then I had advertising career, but I never was close to the director. Director was someone mysterious who was doing their job. Agency was there to ask what's the Wi-Fi password and <laughs> look at the monitor in the village. So when I became a director and honestly, I'm like every day, I'm grateful that I did that. I think this is my the right place and I'm in in the right place in life. So when I did that, I was I had to learn very fast. And I think that my style of working comes from my personality. I think that's all because nobody told me what I should do or I shouldn't do. I always try to avoid drama on set and to avoid the feeling of tiredness or the feeling that I don't want to do that job, or maybe it's too commercial, or maybe this is not my vision. I try to have a very precise treatment and then really over-prepare. And I think over-preparation is something that I do. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows that I over-prepare because I do it at home, mostly in on a computer. But when I come to set and when I work with a DP, I have a very clear vision of what I want to achieve. And I think that helps me really to be calm on set. I think I'm very calm on set. Yeah, and I think the enthusiasm part of it's so huge too. Like it's so helpful to work, to have someone leading the, the crew who is enthusiastic, whether it's a social media thing or a big project or whatever it might be. It's like that enthusiasm goes such a long way. And I've always experienced that with you. And I've seen it like have ripple effects down the crew where Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to put in my extra effort because our director is enthusiastic about what we're trying to create. Yeah, I think that really stems from the fact that I over-prepare. And so when, when I come to set and I work with people, there's like really nothing that surprises me. I just feel calm and I can be myself and I can just like, like I look at the project with optimism. Of course, not every project. Let's not, let's be honest. <laughs> Sometimes there are more difficult projects where I want to cry quietly but of course I don't do that but most of the time it's a very good experience for me and I heard from crews as well that they just enjoyed shooting yeah those are the projects where you just have to fake it a little bit and that's okay we all do that as long as that's what you're putting out into the world that's what matters right and yeah it's so interesting it's so funny that you characterize directing as a personality because that's something I've said since film school I remember at NYU there were these directing classes and I never took any of them but they were supposedly teaching you techniques about how to talk to actors and Meisner technique and different acting schools and blocking and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And I always found it funny because even then I was like, I don't, you can teach this stuff. You can teach the technical side of things, but directing ultimately is a personality. I've always felt that directing is an attitude and it's a mindset and it's an energy that somebody brings to set. And it's less about technique and it's more about just setting that sort of tone of the shoot and being prepared and having answers for everything, even if you just come up with them off, off the fly and it's bringing taste and bringing all of those things like that's what directing is. And those are things that you can't really teach. You just have to tap into them within yourself and figure out how to express them and listen to them and, and all of that. So it's great that you mentioned that because that's something I've felt for a long time. But, I yeah. feel like with directing, you don't have any tangible set of skills that you can right. say, this is what director needs, except for you need to really like people. I think that without liking people, you're not going to be a good 100%. director. 100%. You need to be a people person, for sure. I think that's the big one. Yeah. 
Yes, you can be shy, you can be extroverted, introverted, doesn't matter, but you have to have authentic sympathy and enjoying people's company. So how do you make this transition? So I can tell you how mine went. I used to do passion projects with uh, my husband, who happens to be a DP, actually. So that's very helpful to have someone in your circle of friends or family who actually knows how to shoot. And so I was doing those passion projects, but just for fun, just to try something out, just to have a creative outlet. But there was nothing in it that was commercial and there was nothing in it that could really create my reel yet. It was very artistic and we did even like good at film festivals, but there isn't straight way from film festivals for sh short film festivals to commercial directing. Actually, I think the, the way is much longer. It's not so straightforward. So when I, I was ready to change a career after 12 years in advertising, I was slightly burned out. I did like this career, but I felt there's something more. And it's just a feeling. I didn't know where it came from, but I just knew. Somehow I knew, you know, maybe life is predetermined for us and we know like glimpses of the future. I just knew that kind of like my time in advertising on the agency side was over. And I just decided, strangely, just to take my tiny reel and just go around people in New York, really, from one door to another and tell them that I'm a director. And this required a lot of strong guts. And really, I think it made me very resistant to rejection because I was rejected many times and people looked at me strangely. But I think the fact that I just started telling people that, hey, I direct. And then it took me a very long time to actually call myself a director. This was the most difficult part to write on my Instagram director. <laughs> It's very difficult. Make it official. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that basically you just have to believe uh, that you can do it, slightly fake it, and then do the things that you're not 100% ready for. At one of the meetings, I was meeting with the creative director at Havas, and he was actually the CCO of the company. And he told me he wanted to hire me for one of their clients, actually full time. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to be our director or creative director. And I told him, look, what I really want to do is direct. And he said, great, why don't you pitch this project, beauty project for us? So with this, actually I won this project and I didn't know how to write a treatment back then. I won this project and from then on, I started getting more and more projects and slowly, you know, every rep came to me actually from Poland. And so this is a difficult process, but I would say if we had to like give advice to like up and coming directors or people who want to direct, first of all, do the work and do it for zero money, but just have something on your reel and then call yourself a director because if you don't give yourself a title, nobody's going to give you the title. And then just go and hustle and be ready for a lot of rejection, hard feelings. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I love that. That's great advice. Is there anything that you feel gives you an advantage as a director from your experience on the agency side? And also, I'm wondering if there's anything that you pull from your industrial design studies into directing. Is, are there any techniques that you use or, or anything that, that sort of translates over? Definitely advertising gave me an understanding of how the business works and what are the fears of the clients, but also the hopes and also the hopes of the agencies. I know the lingo, so I can talk about 
taglines and bumpers and all the stuff that I just didn't have to learn what it is and I didn't have to ask questions. So I guess maybe I come across as knowledgeable about their business. But that's really helpful because it's business. It's not, we're not doing art house cinema. Just the feeling that the clients and the agencies like are secure with me. They can feel safe and they know that I know what they're talking about. So definitely, yes. I try not to advertise. I try not to tell the agencies that I have agency background though. Right. So this is a very interesting paradox. I feel like it's good that I do have this background, but I don't want agencies to see me as, oh, like she's an ex-advertising because I feel like they need to see me as a director. They need to see that I have this craft in my hands and that I'm from a little bit different world. So it's a little bit, it's a thin line for me to tell them, I know what you're talking about, to like really ask questions and try to make them feel that I'm asking questions because I'm curious, but not because I basically understand everything. And I think that part of being director is spending countless hours writing treatments. And I think that I have an ability to write a really good treatment. I'm sorry, but it's true. No, okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> no, it's good. Embrace it. Another thing that advertising gave me is ability to create really good mood boards and therefore create really comprehensive and beautiful treatments. So I write all my treatments myself. I lay all my treatments myself. Sometimes I do have a help from a ghostwriter, but in a way that I write it and they just take it and make it more client-facing with wording, grammar, especially when I write in English. Which but is I'm... rare. We should point out if anyone's listening who isn't aware, a lot of production companies have in-house treatment writers and agencies. So a lot of times directors do not write their own treatments in the commercial world. And that's pretty common practice, just in, in, in case anyone's listening and wondering why it's distinct that Marisha writes your own treatments, which I think is because it's so time consuming and it's, it is such a tedious part of the job, which is why people like to not do it. So it is very notable and impressive. And I think that probably contributes to a very clear through line of consistency and vision and a guiding hand from you as a director from early in the in the pitching process all the way up to the shoot. Yeah. And honestly, writing treatments is excruciating. Yes. It's I go through pain when I have to do that. <laughs> I usually first day, I usually takes me three days. First day I have to go for a really long walk and really think about it. And then I look for image references and just like camera movement references and then I write it. So I start from the very visual side. But I think it's, of course, a lot of directors don't have time to write every treatment because sometimes you have three treatments in a week and I still do that. I always need to lay it out. But why is writing treatments so important for me? It's because... When I write a treatment, I really come up with an idea. It's this process of analyzing things and looking at references and going back to the initial idea. That is when my treatment really forms, the idea, the vision really forms. So I think that if I wouldn't do it myself, I probably would feel again back to over prep i would feel like i didn't think it through well so that's why it's really important and definitely agency experience gave me this ability i'm still improving i started using a much more moving image in my treatments sometimes i'm now i'm trying to write much shorter treatments than i used to but sometimes 80 pages that's way too much oh my god like, yeah for a commercial that's amazing. <laughs> I, think I wish 40 I would get pages. 80 pages. 
Yeah, I wish I would get 80 page uh, treatments sometimes. That's very thorough. I love that. Maybe I think like between 30 and 35 pages is actually best. Still so much work. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good sweet spot. And so you mentioned moving images. So you use GIFs, right? Like animated GIFs. Yeah, so basically I browse lots of sources. I use Source Creative, which is amazing tool. Uh, it's a subscription-based tool from Shots. And I look for like inspirational references there. It still takes a lot of time, even if you're on a very expensive you know, subscription website, because let's say I see it in my head with a commercial they just did recently. I really wanted the page, the first page, the cover page of my treatment put to be this little girl dressed in a soccer outfit at night, standing in the middle of this sports arena stadium, soccer stadium, backlit by those spotlights coming mm. from the bleachers. And she's looking like with hope into the future. And she's eight years old, or like really little girl. And yeah. you can't find an image like that. You just can't. So this one I created with Midjourney. Yeah. But for other shots, like sometimes looking for a specific camera movement, I use Source Creative. Of course, Shot Deck is a great tool for more cinematic look. And then, believe it or not, I use Pinterest. Mm -hmm. But Pinterest, I have a problem with Pinterest because it's so referential that uh, you just, with Pinterest, you end up repeating a lot of like trends and techniques that people use it's, that are very popular. Right. But these yeah. are my main tools. Yeah, I find animated GIFs really helpful for camera movement. Like I, I, I really love seeing that. It's it's pretty rare, but it's 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 always really great when somebody's thought through that side of thing. It's not just thinking about reference images as a still, but it's really about cinematography as motion as like a holistic thing. I just, it's just it's great. I'm glad that you use those. More people should. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned this young female character in this recent commercial you shot, and I was curious to ask, looking at your work holistically, like there's clearly a lot of beautiful work that is about female empowerment and honestly just about kind of what you were saying earlier about you just need to like people and you need to see the best in people and I think your work does a beautiful job of that and I'm curious just how you feel like you've been able to have that perspective and how you try to maybe push forward that perspective and whether you treat certain jobs differently than other ones in terms of the sensitivity of the subject matter or do you apply your your treatment to a project the same whether it's about a, a story of a young girl and, and her journey or something more commercial i'm just curious to hear how your gears turn when it comes to yeah the type of work that that you do so I never consciously chose this niche or this direction in my work that is uh, telling women's stories. I think it just came to me. And like lots of other things in life, I don't think it's conscious choice. It's just a long series of happenings that push you towards this direction for some reason. It's very interesting. But once I did one project like that, I thought this is really interesting. I feel I have something to say in this subject. And I feel like I can represent women. And it was time, that was around when I started directing right after Me Too and lots of social kind of changes and how we see women. And I felt like it was very now, back then. And it really spoke to me. And also, you know, as a woman doing traditionally very masculine job, I felt definitely like a drawn to that subject. And I also noticed that I feel drawn to very empathetic stories. Of course, I would love to do a car commercial. I haven't done a car commercial <laughs> yet. So let's not close that door. But definitely I'm drawn to empathetic stories because I feel like I feel very confident when I tell those stories. I feel like there is nothing. I'm not lying. I'm not trying to be something else. And that's important to me just for my level of confidence. I need to be able to stand by the story that I'm telling. 
I love that. I think it's such a good point that it just yeah. needs to feel right for it to, yeah, for it to go that well. Yeah, and I think what's I think what's interesting about that too is I think in the in a past interview you mentioned you talked about the relationship between art and the audience that art needs an audience, and I think that creating empathetic art, even in the commercial space, that kind of empathy is partially putting yourself in an audience's shoes, right? Like you're thinking about how an audience is going to experience this emotional journey or story or whatever you're going to take them on. So can you talk about that a little bit? I want to hear more about this, the relationship, your thoughts on the relationship between art and its viewers, because I think there's some connection here that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think that uh, if I had to do it just for myself and nobody ever would see it, I wouldn't do it. So it's interesting because I'm not, I don't think I'm very like ego-driven person, but at the same time, I really want people to see my commercials. And really the fact that my aunt watched my uh, McDonald's commercial and she was like very moved. I love that. Oh my God, it was a really great moment. So I think that creating short films, which are commercials, is a way of sharing feelings and emotions with people. And I love that I can influence people and I can show, not only connect with them, because they're watching something that I've been working on. They're watching part of me, really, but also getting feedback from people. And look, we're still talking about commercials. It's crazy, right? Because it's who cares about commercials? But really, commercials that you see on the internet are not only product-driven 15 seconds. They're much more these days. I've had a change in view on that, too, where like for a long time, I was like, oh, in order to have an emotional impact, it'll have to be a narrative or something like that. And then you realize that like commercials reach more people, you know, like you're reaching a really wide audience and you're tapping into something that's very immediate and like very in the moment. Yeah, I think it's absolutely like valid to think of them as short films and to think of them as a way to change the zeitgeist or yeah, have people empathize with whatever the subject is. Yeah, I think that immediate is the key word here. It's great. It's urgent and immediate and it happens now. And it's just this feeling now when I think about it, that we're doing sort of something between art and craft and uh, also like selling and marketing, but it's so, it feels so today. It's great. And it's actually nice that we can move on, finish one project, move on. And it's not going to live forever. It's going to live for maybe two years on our reels. And then we can move on to the next thing. It's really exciting for me. That brings up another question for me, which is this. I was reading about this philosophy that you have of just doing the work and, and moving on and not really dwelling on past projects or past achievements. And I love that work ethic. I love that kind of that energy of work is work and we're here to do our job well and, and then we can move on. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about whether you still feel that way or if it's changed or how that factors into your role as a director. The feeling of just moving on definitely stays with me. And it is a self-preservance tool. It's, it prevents me from dwelling too much on what I could have done better. But at the same time, I'm super passionate about projects. So when I'm in the project, I want it to be the best. However, I definitely don't go into the trap of perfectionism. I try not to. I used to be perfectionist and it never served me any good. I think perfectionist stifles us. It makes us stop in our tracks. It doesn't make us grow. I think... Uh, uh, perfectionism makes us censor ourselves and also we don't speak our mind when we're trying to be perfect because we're trying to please everyone around. So I think that we should just be we should be very excited about our job. We should, I'm always very excited about project but I think that 85% good is good enough and I try to live by it because it really helps me to first of all free my imagination and kind of creativity because for example we're on set and let's say one shot just doesn't work 
we can't keep shooting it for another two hours. We have to move on. And if something doesn't work, I would before I would be killing myself over getting this one perfect shot. But right now I'm saying, okay, this doesn't work. Let's move on. Let's try something different. So it's really like a kind of therapeutic realization that not everything has to be perfect. Once the project is done, let's go and look for the next interesting thing. And yeah, keep let's keep moving to the next thing. That is such a key observation to tap into. And it's something that I've noticed as well in, in my own work and my own experience. Because I also, I think, have been a self-professed perfectionist for a long time. But film production specifically is the antithesis of perfectionism because you have a limited amount of time and you have to take that factor into account because you don't have unlimited time and unlimited resources to get everything exactly perfect. And because of that, leaning into that is not just a result of that. It's also, I think, it leads to better art because good, really good art has imperfection. And I think that part of what makes mid-journey generated imagery lack that emotional connection is it's too perfect. It's too clean. It's too polished. And, and, and again, useful as a reference tool, but that's why it can't replace the, the human mistakes and the human lack of perfection. And learning to lean into that and to embrace that has been huge for me as well, like over the last just couple of years, honestly. I've definitely shifted on that, on this topic as well. And it also helps logistically exactly what you've described. If you're just stuck on something, like you try a shot and it doesn't work, just toss it away. You're just like, all right, this isn't working. There's nothing here. Like it, it's just a better way to work. It's great to hear you talk about that because it's something I've experienced and been thinking about myself over yeah. the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I think that people, I really try not to say things like, from hindsight, or I wish I have done something different because I could have done so many things so differently. The only thing I can do personally to make my next project even better is to really take more time in prep, take more time in treatment writing and make sure that everybody understands my vision. And when it comes to honestly, like coming to set, that's not work anymore. It's just pleasure. It's just like being in the flow. But all the, the important decisions have to happen before. And just don't ruminate. I, I, I try not to ruminate. I used to a lot, but now I'm just look for the next thing. Yeah, but I think that's so beautiful too, because I think we have a tendency to be hard on ourselves as filmmakers and as artists. I think that's such a common thing. I feel like more people than not, if you talk to them and ask them about it, they would say, oh, I can't watch my past work. I can't look at anything. All I see are the flaws. All I see are the things I would do differently. And I think I used to feel that way and I've shifted on it a little bit as time has gone on. Like just being able to take a step back and accept something for what it is. And also accept that what really mattered on a project is, did we capture something authentic? And did we capture something that feels real and genuine and emotional? And if you did, then I think that's a success. Like whether or not there are little technical flaws. I mean, cinematographers especially can get very tunnel vision about, oh, if I only did this, added a little bit of bounce here or a little less this there. And I think we can get caught up in that and it can be detrimental to the work. Yeah. Yes. And I think that being such a control freak really doesn't help creativity. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just stops us. It stops us from looking for solutions. If you have this idea for this one shot and the camera movement, let's say it's steadicam movement, doesn't work. It's just choreography. Something is wrong. But if you spend two hours repeating it, you might be actually losing time 
on another idea that was even better, but you would have to just take 15 minutes and realize this is not working. Let's try something else. So definitely. But of course, I think in this business, everybody's perfectionist. So we just have to like really try hard not to be. Oh, 100 yeah. percent. It definitely attracts that type of personality. Like, it, yeah, so we have to fight our own nature in some ways. But I think uh, that fight is worth it. One thing it makes me think about, too, like hearing you talk about it is how I feel like there's no coincidence sometimes when we look back at some of our earliest work, like even work from three, four or five, six years ago, and it still holds up and it's still really meaningful and visually pleasing or whatever, that it's probably because it was messy and it's probably because it was imperfect and because we didn't, we weren't distracted by all of these like things that we restrict us and make us think differently or compare ourselves to other people. It was just uninhibited creativity. And I feel like so much of the journey is like reaccessing that and like creating that type of spontaneity and improv in a very controlled, very kind of restrictive environment that we sometimes find each other ourselves on in like bigger projects and stuff yeah i agree 100 percent. i'm dreaming of a project now that is uh, very free-flowing and open to experimentation and shot in a even like an ugly way uh, that doesn't require tons of light and i'm dreaming about it i actually just did a fashion series now that we're a little bit lower budget and we had a lot of free reign and choosing subjects and choosing way of filming it and we shot on 16 and this was so refreshing this was so refreshing there was no storyboard there were just scenes that we dreamt up i want to have more projects like that for sure i love that we were curious to ask you on that topic do you find that there's a big difference between the nature and the creative opportunities for projects commercial projects that you direct in poland or in europe versus the directing projects that you get in the United States? There is a big difference working. I mostly work in Poland and US. I also work in Europe a little bit, but my rep is in Poland and I have a rep in US. There is There are major differences for directors and for DPs. When it comes to projects, I haven't really touched on big budget projects in US yet, but I have in Poland. So I wouldn't compare those projects together because of course it's different working on a big budget for McDonald's when you can have all the toys and unlimited amount of light and whatever you dream up will happen. But I can tell you the differences about the structure of prep and then shoot and post for director. So major difference is that in Poland, the director has to be present throughout post, and that includes color correction. Mm -hmm. It's a very big difference because the director is considered to be an author of the, of the film, and they have to deliver the final product, not only deliver the shots on set. So edit becomes your responsibility to the point that it's very rare that you would edit remotely. Usually you just show up in the editing suite and you sit for three, five, or maybe 10 days with the editor. They wouldn't even start looking through footage without you most of the time. So on one hand, I love it because it really gives me, first of all, I feel very respected in a way that this is my vision and I have to deliver it. This is a great feeling. But of course, sometimes when I have pro projects stacked, sometimes I wish, ugh, I wish I wouldn't have to do post and be in person, in Warsaw, Poland, in the editing suite. So some people love it, some people hate it. It depends on the project, of course. And in a way, you can do a little bit less projects because it takes a full month from starting prep to really finishing the edit. Another difference is that I think that the collaboration with a DP is closer in Poland between the director and DP. Um, it's maybe my personal feeling, but uh, very often I meet, most of the time, 
I meet with a DP in a coffee shop or at home and we really like flesh out a visual approach for each scene when I'm shooting in Poland. It really doesn't happen in the States, maybe because also like the jobs are so spread out like LA and like Atlanta and New York and the DP is in Colorado. You know, in Poland, everything happens in Warsaw. It's easy to meet up with this person because they will be also living in Warsaw. So I think these two differences are major. And then, of course, there is a big difference for DPs as well, because I was just talking recently with a friend of mine who also works in Poland and US, and she said, DPs are gods in Poland. (laughs) And it is really, there is definitely maybe like 75% of it is true. And US, it's more craft and business. So in Poland, you can, as a DP, you can request set of lights and the production feels really embarrassed to negotiate the sets of lights because I feel the artist needs their tools. I don't know how, honestly, I've never been privy to conversations like that in the States, but I feel like here they really are seen as an artist equal to director. And even another name for DP in Poland is the author of the image, Mm. which is very telling. Yeah, we really like that. Look, there's a reason Poland is the only country in the world that puts on a film festival just for cinematographers. <laughs> There's a reason Cameramage is in Poland. And I think that's why everybody goes there every year to just feel a little bit of that spotlight and that love. <laughs> we need it a little bit. We feel neglected. But it's interesting. I mean, the reason I think we bring it up and we're so interested in it from our perspective, at least for me as somebody who pretty much only works in the U.S., is it feels like there's more opportunity for from a director in commercials to explore those kind of more creative, like interestingly creative treatments and approaches to commercials than there is here. Everything here, with the exception of maybe some things at the very top of the creative world and the ad world, feels very like straightforward and direct and simple. But then you see some commercials that come out of Europe and some of these other places, and there's such creativity there that you sometimes wonder, is that just the stuff that we see that that makes it over? Or is there more opportunity as a director in commercials at the treatment stage and at the conceptual stage to push and create stuff that is a little bit more creatively interesting or creatively freeing or experimental and stuff that interests you as a filmmaker as opposed to just being handed a brief and being like, here's the product we need to sell. Interesting. I'm trying to find a very balanced answer to that, but I think I'm going to be speaking just from my personal experience. I think that Here in Poland, agencies and clients are more willing to give a big job to a director who hasn't done lots of big jobs yet. It's still business and it's a very big business, but there is less fear, I think, in awarding jobs to up and coming directors. And that is one of the reasons why I was able to very quickly go to move over to bigger jobs here. I think that those top, top projects in the States go to very few directors for that reason. These are very big budgets and there is lots of fear about the product, about from production side, from the client side. There is a lot of responsibility. And honestly, like, why would you give it to a up and coming director who you don't know if they're even going to show up in a good you know, shape on set? So of course, I understand those both sides. Uh, another reason I think is that there are just like less directors here in Poland. There are tons of directors in the States. It seems to be a very hot job in the States. And here there are enough, but it's a very small kind of like a locked off group. So I think it's also like once you enter this group and once you have a rep, it's easier for you to just get jobs and bigger jobs. So I think these are the reasons. Super interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that ultimately is what ends up happening. There's more directors here. There's more cinematographers here in the U.S. So there's more jobs, but there's also more competition. 
And I think there is a little bit less of a support system to say, okay, you're in the film industry, so you are now guaranteed a certain level of success and reaching a certain level in your career. Like you really have to fight for it for your, but on your own, which is also a very American thing. Yeah. And I think that it's more of a business there in the States and in Poland, it's more still considered form of art, even if it's commercial. So if you're a director, if you're a cinematographer, you're really an artist here. And I think that is also a major difference. You're treated a little bit differently. If it's, tr if you, if it's a business, like in the States, you really have to come very well prepared. You have to be very well connected. You have to be uh, always performing at your best. People have to trust you with, your, with their money. But when it's an art form, there is a little bit more of a, ah, maybe he behaves strange than meeting, but he's an amazing artist. Right. Yeah, it's a little more forgiving in that way. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I feel like here, the struggle of working in the film industry and even working in the commercial world is like, how do we bring as much of the art world into it as possible? Like, I always feel like it's, what can we get away with on a commercial? What can we get away with? How much can we push it? How much can we make it artistically interesting to us and therefore to an audience versus how much is that kind of, I don't know, blocked by the commercial financial needs of the project and it's commercials is really at the forefront of that but really the entire medium film television all of it is you bump up against the same the same conflict and that's sort of like the conflict at the heart of the american film industry from the beginning it's a business and it's an art form at the same time and it's like how do you reconcile it i don't know i think as individuals we just do what we can to like push it as much as as we can first time i worked with the polish dp I started working actually as a director in the States, and then I quickly got a rep in Poland. Uh, first time I worked with a Polish DP, I asked him, are you coming to color grading? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, that's my job. <laughs> and then I realized that it's very different because <laughs> when was the last time you, it was your job to come to color grading in the States? You can, it's not required of you, but in Poland, actually DP has to be in color grading. So if they cannot come that day because they're shooting, the color grading is moved to another day so they can be there in person. Yeah, wow. When you told me that, I was like shocked. If anything, like from my perspective, bias toward the importance that I think cinematography has, like I would want it to be more like what you're describing in Poland. But at the same time, like I can see where that could maybe also become that whole thing that you're mentioning of, oh, this person's crazy, but they're an artist. And so, and then there's the opposite extreme, which is here, I feel like often we're fighting we're like fighting for things and trying to like, it's a, we're always on the defense and it's like, there's nothing more refreshing than like getting onto a project and having the producer come up to you and be like, I understand your role is important. Let me know what you need. I'll do what I can. And I don't know. I just feel like it's very interesting to hear the full spectrum of how cinematographers and directors are treated in different markets. There are things that are amazing in the States. I think that the culture in the States is such that there is a huge reverence for process. And I love that. I love to have process in place. And very often on Polish uh, productions, there isn't a great, very clearly explained process, or even like a, we all agree to the same process. Everybody has sometimes maybe different idea about the process. Whereas in States, it's very clear. I know step by step that if we agree to something, it will hold. So I love that. And I think that's why Americans are generally like successful in mm. lots of uh, different areas. That's so interesting. Yeah, the certainty of it all is important. 
Marisha, we're going to ask one final question, which as a cinematography podcast, we feel like we cannot have a director on without asking like the obligatory question that is on every cinematographer's mind, which is what do you look for in a cinematographer? And in the wide world of so many cinematographers and so many talented people, what stands out to you as a director? Like what makes a DP stand out from the hundreds of us that are out there? Maybe thousands. I don't actually know. Oh, gosh. So first of all, the DP has to be recommended to me by someone. Most often it's production. Sometimes it's people from rep or sometimes even a DP that cannot do the job recommends me someone. But most of the time it's a production that says, hey, we know those three amazing DPs here in LA and they are all women and look at their portfolios. So that is really important. Another important thing that I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm going to say it is that when I look at their websites, I don't really like watch every film. Sometimes I just look at the thumbnails, the icons, and if they are amazing, then I'm sold. And of course I would watch something that like stands out to me. You have no idea how important this is like one image that represents your film. And it's actually embarrassing personally to say that, but I think lots of directors also like superficially browse those websites. And then another really important thing for me, once I get to work with someone and I have a meeting with them and we talk about the commercial and like the my vision, I always love to see the cinematography boards. And that is something that I don't think it used to be that common. And right now, especially here in Poland, it's very common, is that after meeting and after uh, seeing my vision, the DP goes home and kind of like prepares this board for each scene. That is not necessarily what client wants to see. Sometimes it's way too dark <laughs> or way too moody. It's very dark always. Always. But it's, always. <laughs> but it's just something that they like would love to the quality of light. Or maybe it's just like this one like silhouetted like person in front of the window or something. I love to see that. I just love to see those boards because it really speaks about the person that I'm working with. I don't necessarily need someone who can recreate every look. I don't need the DP to be able to shoot everything, but I want a, a very distinct point of view. And I know it's difficult for you guys because you don't want to get pigeonholed in one look. It's very difficult, but I want someone who has a point of view or at least to tell me what they want to do because I'm very respectful to people that actually are not afraid to tell me that something works, something doesn't work, and they guide me to better solutions. I really want to be influenced by a DP. I love that. Yeah. I think the thumbnail thing yeah. is actually completely valid. Like I find myself sometimes just looking at sites from like a high level and like you can tell like it's not even you don't have to dig deep like you can almost just tell right from the page like what you're dealing with and it's cool to hear you just sort of say that like it's true yeah 100 percent. i i completely agree and i think there's a few really great nuggets of wisdom and advice in this for anyone listening in terms of website design layout how you're presenting your work and this is stuff that that i've talked about before so like i do think it's it is really important and it's really great to hear how a director might be looking at that or how a producer or production company might be interacting with your work. And I think it's just honest to say that people are not going to sit down and watch every single one of your pieces. So the way that you present your body of work is important. I get very used to people, so I don't start working with new DPs very often. Once I have a DP I love, I just keep working with them. But when I choose a new DP and I'm looking for a new DP for a project, when I look at their website, this website has to give me this sense of hope. I'm like, oh my God, this is how my next project is going to look like. So 
it's actually I really get this like feeling oh my god and I want this to inspire me I want to feel like ah this is gonna be my work like that it's gonna look this amazing so it's I think it's even better to put four really amazing projects on your website than have 20 that are four amazing and then maybe two not the best 100 percent. yeah there's a lot to unpack here too like even with the mood board thing like I think I more recently have put into practice like this thing where no matter what the project is no matter what the director asks for I do always try to like either after initial call or even before the initial call happens that may even be like an interview for the project is put something together because and I may have partially learned that from working with you but also I also really learned it from being on an interview call with a production designer once where it was like me the director and the production designer and we were all interviewing the production designer for the project and they came to the interview with a full-blown like mood board and I was like oh like what am I I should always have this too and so I've started doing that and it's cool to hear from you that that helps a lot and that like you said it doesn't need to be perfect it doesn't need to be board specific it can be rough and it can be moody images and stuff but like if you don't show that what are you really resting on just like past work that might be completely unrelated to the project or like you know your sensibilities change so frequently that I think it's important to always kind of just show exactly like no surprises like this is what interests me in relation to this project and and in relation to working with you as a director and everything. You want to close it out, Peter? All righty. Marisha, thank you so, so much for coming on. And I know we went a little bit over. I absolutely loved everything that you talked to us about. And yeah, we're just super grateful that you gave us your time and shared your wisdom. Thank you guys so much. It was a pleasure. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Oren Sofer, and David Kruta, with original music by One Wave. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the Salon community for sourcing topics for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks. <laughs>